You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. I mean, you started doing stand-up when you were 15, and you dropped out of high school, and then really the next thing we hear from you is that you're on Saturday Night Live, and you become uh, a part of the cast there. What's happening between 1970 and 1980? Like, how did you kind of build your skills? God, I don't know. First time I went up on a stage, I was 15. And I think everybody in show business has this. It's that split personality where one half of you is like, I'm going into show business and people are going to pay money to come see me and they're gonna go to the movies and turn on the TV just to watch me, because I'm that great. And then the other half of you is saying, oh, oh, please love me, please love me. I want some reassurance that I'm worth it. Do you think you need both? Because when you're on the stage, you probably can't let the audience see you're nervous about what they think, or else they'll tear you apart. But at the same time, you have to perform material that you know is going to make them laugh. Yeah, it, it, it's so, yeah, it's, so it's a definitely split thing. Was there ever a point where you felt like, oh, I did go too far? Um, I remember I, I once uh, did this show that was a tribute to Joan Rivers. I went on stage and it was right after there was that shooting at this gay nightclub. And I started doing jokes about the shooting at the gay nightclub. And the audience was laughing all the way through. And you know, Joan Rivers, that's a largely gay audience. And and one guy tweeted me and he said, I never thought I'd wake up crying and go to sleep laughing. And one other guy sent me a tweet, he said, You make me laugh at times when I don't want to, and that's when I need it the most. Tell me when you start rolling, though. Uh, Yeah, let's start. You know, it's interesting because you have this almost above and beyond persona on stage, and I feel it gives permission to comedians to say, well, I can at least do something with my voice, or I can at least say all these curse words, or I can at least, you know, hit this very sensitive material, because Gilbert Godfrey does it, and he's Iago on Aladdin, so it must be okay. So so basically, I'm ruining other people's careers. No, I think it's <laughs> better, because you widen the scope of what they think is acceptable in today's day and age. Yeah. I mean, we'll, talk, we'll talk about this on the podcast, right. though. Uh, Okay. Oh, we're recording? Yeah. Okay, well, okay. I've got Gilbert Gottfried on the podcast. Gilbert's been in 
everything. I feel like for the past Schindler's List, <laughs> I was third Jew to the left. Yeah. Schindler's List, yeah. Uh, Saving Private Ryan, every yes. World War II movie, <laughs> yeah. every platoon with Oliver Stone. <laughs> Uh, and then on top of that, Beverly Hills Cop 2. Yeah. A bunch Apocalypse of Eddie Murphy now. movies. <laughs> yeah. I would say, if people say, oh, I loved you in X, I think it's probably first Iago, the bird on Aladdin. But yeah. also your voice is so distinct. You're, Affleck, you're the Affleck duck. In, oh, well, in, we have to say was. Was. Yes. For, for 11 yeah. years, though. That's a long time for yeah. a, a commercial gig. Um, what else? I mean, you, you've been on everything. You've been on every late night show. You've been on, if you go down your list of credits, you've been in 100 movies, 50 TV shows. What, when people say, hey, I loved you in X, what do they usually say? That, that varies. Um, and that, that's which, which is a good thing. Sometimes they'll pick like uh, kids, uh, family entertainment, like Aladdin, or um, or that I do this voice on a cartoon called Cyber Chase, and um, you know these you know children stuff like that. And other times they'll say the aristocrats. Yeah, but also your image of you with your voice and your <laughs> your squinting, yeah. like that image itself is like iconic. Like you're you're in the popular culture for that particular yeah. look and voice. Where do you think everybody is? It Beverly Hills Cop Two? Is it? I don't know. They, where they a lot of times people come up to me and they can uh, recite the whole Beverly Hills Cop Two scene, and that was that was fun because we just started improvising. Oh really? Uh, me and Eddie. It was a basically short scene, and it wasn't that funny and we just started each time we did it we did it differently and just had fun with it and eddie murphy who many people consider the greatest comedian ever has i've seen him call you the greatest comedian ever like you obviously had a great relationship with him yeah we're like uh sammy and dean <laughs> how did you guys how did you guys meet uh, I, the first time, I think the first time I met him was he was on Saturday Night Live. Uh, yeah. Originally, they hired him as a featured player, and then later on, they made him a regular. Um, that was a terrible season of Saturday Night Live. Well, that was the first season where the whole original cast was now gone. Yeah. And you're, you're, you're in their place. Yeah, it, it was kind of like, if 1980 yeah if you change the entire cast of friends when that when that show was on the air and just bought a bunch of new people in and you go wait a minute who's who's playing joey who's playing rachel i don't like these you would be david swimmer the david Uh, swimmer character (laughs) so but I heard you say that's that that's a great analogy. I heard you say that on Howard Stern. You did a great interview with Howard Stern about this period of time. Um, you were all, you were on very few sketches. They didn't really use the no. full you. But I think you were still developing your your voice and your character. Yeah, it was uh, it was a bad time to be there. And I remember when Eddie Murphy was still a featured player. They did some sketch called like a 
a nature show was supposed, and it was in search of the black Republican. And, and they hired a black actor to be in that skate. They had Eddie Murphy there and they reduced him to just being a waiter walking around carrying a tray. Was he upset? Like this is after his, some of his major specials, right? Uh, no, no. By then he wasn't known. But, oh, okay. But he was there, you figure. Why'd they do I, that? Yeah, I don't know. Very was, peculiar. Was Lauren Michaels still running? Uh, no, no, that was the other part of it. It was not just the cast that left, but Lauren Michaels left. So it was, it was hard. It was like, you know, also if it, in the middle of Beatlemania, four other guys took over for the Beatles. You know, it's like, you don't want to see. Right. And you don't want to be the replacement. You want to be the replacement for the replacement. Right, because then that wave of replacements on SNL, they went all on to be movie stars and people said, oh, okay, SNL can survive this. Yes. Cause, but back then it was like how it was sacrilege. Yeah. Now, now it's like, when was the last time you knew the names of the cast members on Saturday Night Live? It, I don't, I think back in the 70s. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like now. Uh, John, what was it? John Belushi, Chevy Chase, uh, yeah, uh, Eddie but, Murphy. Oh, from the original? Yeah. yeah. But now it's like, the cash changes like in between commercial breaks. Yeah. There, you know. So, so there's so many things I want to get to. First, I want to mention um, there's a great documentary about you on Hulu called Gilbert. It's one of the most beautiful documentaries I've seen. Of course, you've had an, a career in stand up since 1970. You're doing stand up comedy almost 50 years now. Uh, when you were 15 years old, you started, you didn't finish high school. You also have a great podcast. I want to mention that. The, the, Gilbert Gottfried Colossal Podcast. Amazing, amazing Colossal Podcast. Uh, amazing Colossal Podcast. And many, it's weird when I look down your list of guests, many of the guests have been on this podcast. Like oh. we just had on Henry, you had them on years earlier though. We had yeah. on Henry Winkler, Brian Koppelman, Paul Schaefer, a bunch of guys that you've had on. But what's great about the energy of your podcast and, and you do it on a very regular basis. Like I, I'm surprised you... You keep so busy with it, but you you get your friends together in a room, it seems, and you just talk about what you love talking about and you and your inspirations and old movies you like and old comedians you liked. And uh, it's it's a wonderful podcast to listen to. So I encourage everyone to listen to that. And and it's fun because I, I originally when we were putting the podcast together, I thought, well, I'm interested in old Hollywood and I but nobody's going to care. They're not going to know who these people are. And sure enough, it's like what I love is that people will go. I will get these messages where they say, I had no idea who that was you were talking about and uh, who you were talking to, but I've been looking it up. And I thought that's, and, and they, they love these people now. But I, I, you know, it's interesting that you love old Hollywood. Like, I feel like your, your style as a comedian is almost like, let's say, a Groucho Marx, but if Groucho Marx was in 2018. Yeah. Like, you know, it's a persona and it's an extreme persona. The, the voice, the, the, your face, even the way you're grabbing the microphone, yeah. you, know, you, you slouch a little bit. 
and it's everything's an extreme and and your voice has that that you know your comedy voice has that grating aspect um and then but then you tell these extraordinarily filthy yeah. jokes <laughs> and it's i remember the the first time i heard the aristocrats and we'll we'll get into this you it was right after 911 in 2001 you were um, at, at a performance in, uh, on September 29th, just yeah. 18 days later. The Hugh Hefner roast. Yeah, the Hugh Hefner roast. And you tell uh, a 9-11 joke and the audience is like starts to groan and or says that someone says too soon. And so you figured, tell me if I'm wrong, you figured, okay, I'm just going to go for it. Yeah. And you, you make up on the fly the filthiest possible joke. And I almost don't want to laugh at it because yeah. it's so extraordinarily... Like, and I appreciate any kind of humor, but it's so extraordinarily crude. And I'm just like spitting out my food laughing the first time I, I heard it. Like, like, what happened that night? Yeah, it was, um, yeah, it was right after September 11th, like a few days. And it's like there were still black clouds all over Manhattan floating around from the, you know, it was still burning the World Trade Center. And um, I, I, and and they were originally going to cancel the roast because they figured, oh, how can we do a comedy thing now? And then it was like a lot of people didn't go. A lot of people were afraid to go on a plane, certainly. And so I was up there, and I figured I wanted to be the first person to address the elephant in the room. And so the first time I started slowly and I said, uh, tonight I'll be using my Muslim name, Hassan bin Laid. And then I, uh, I went into the other one, the one where I completely lost the crowd. I said, I have to leave early tonight. I have to fly to LA. Unfortunately, I couldn't get a direct flight. We have to make a stop at the Empire State Building. <laughs> And people were booing and hissing and chairs were screeching back. And one guy yelled too soon, which I thought meant I didn't take a long enough pause between the setup and punchline. <laughs> you assumed the audience was professional comedians? Yes. <laughs> and, and then I figured I was, if you said I was up there for 200 years, uh, after that joke, I, I believe it. That's what it felt like. Well, you 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 gripped the yeah. podium and you kind of stood back and you were yeah. squinting. It's almost like you were figuring out what to do. Like what yeah. was going through your mind right then? Uh, yeah, I didn't know. It's like you're kind of floating through space because uh, I'd lost an audience as much as anyone could have. In, in a very high stakes situation. Yeah. And then I, I go into the aristocrats joke, which is an old joke, but everyone does it a different way. And I figured, you know, I've already lost the crowd. Why not go to the bottom level of hell? <laughs> and then they started laughing and applauding and cheering. And, and it just showed that they needed that release. Yeah. And, and it's like people, someone wrote an article where they said, it was like I had performed a mass tracheotomy on the crowd. Yeah, because the laughing, you could hear it, was, was nonstop, and, and I was laughing. And then you did something else interesting there, which is mid-joke, 
you've described already all of these pornographic situations yeah. among this family, you know, very kind of almost yeah. middle American family. And, and you describe situation after situation after situation, more and more disgusting. Yeah. And then you start pointing at the audience, um, you know, do you need me to, oh, to start yeah. from the beginning? Yeah. Because you have to catch everything in order to yeah. understand this joke. And just that commentary on the joke was ridiculous. Like, so you're improvising yeah. as well. Like, and I feel like I've seen you do that a couple of times where when a joke is is almost getting too much and you want to back up a little, you 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 comment on the joke, mid-joke, to kind of give people a breath of of air before you continue. Is that planned like you know yeah, you're doing yeah, that no i mean i'll just uh it'll just pop up in my head at times like that and you'll you'll say do you want me to repeat that for you i mean i've seen this in multiple jokes do you want me to go further or, or you'll repeat the same line to make sure they understood and you'll point at one person just to yeah. kind of get them and you get the audience rise up because now they know you're going to point at them they're they're on they're on call oh, oh yeah <laughs> Yeah, no, that was just happening to me on stage when I was. And so this is after, I mean, you started doing stand-up when you were 15, and I'm just reading this out of your Wikipedia page, and you dropped out of high school, and then really the next thing we hear from you is that you're on, you know, people see you and you're brought on to Saturday Night Live and you become uh, a part of the cast there. What's happening between 1970 and 1980? Like, how did you kind of, you know build your skills yeah i i god i don't know i mean i started it may have even been 69 i mean i first time i went up on a stage i was 15 and uh, i was doing mainly impressions because i used to watch old movies on tv and stuff and imitate the actors i'd see in them and it, it wasn't really far from when they used to have mimics when they used to have like impressionists, they uh, now they don't now in Vegas you'll find impressionists and and on like SNL I'll have people who can do impression, but the old style of like you know Frank Gorshin, Rich Little, George Kirby. Uh, I mean, Rich Little, yeah. his entire career was impressions. Uh yeah, yeah, their whole thing, and um, oh. Well, two people we've had on the podcast. We had on Rich Little and Will Jordan. And Will Jordan's the one who invented the Ed Sullivan imitation. And But, yeah, my act was, was pretty much like that. Like, you know, hey, imagine if your waiter was Humphrey Bogart and it might go something like this. And, you know, and then... Yeah, you did a... You did a classic Jackie Gleason in Casablanca. Oh, yes. As Humphrey Bogart, you know, uh, it's so everything's so funny. And then as it was going on for years, I was going up whenever I could on stage, wherever they'd let me go on. And then after a while, I just sort of got tired of just the impressions and started playing around when I was on stage. And then I started to develop more of a real act. What does what does playing around mean, and what does develop a real act mean? Um, well, you're still very young at this point. Yeah, yeah, I was um, uh, playing around, and back then it was I would just go up on stage with nothing prepared, and just start 
talking and joking around. Sometimes I would lose, it was weird. It was like I'd lose the audience totally sometimes. They'd be walking out. And and I back then, I remember I didn't mind it all that much. I think I that was an advancement in skill, not minding what the audience yes, thought of you? Yeah. Because probably at first, when you were 15, maybe you were scared to death of what the audience I, thought. Yeah, it, it's like, I mean, it's still to this day, I have that thing though, where it's like, and I think everybody in show business has this, it's that split personality where one half of you is like, I'm going into show business and people are going to pay money to come see me and they're going to go to the movies and turn on the TV just to watch me because I'm that great. And then the other half of you is saying, oh, oh, please love me. Please love me. I want some reassurance that I'm worth it. Do you think you need both? Because when you're on the stage, you probably can't let the audience see you're nervous about what they yeah. think or else they'll tear you apart. But at the same time, you have to perform material that you know is going to make them laugh. Yeah. It, it, it's so, yeah, so it's a definitely split thing. And, and to this day, there are shows I'll do where I won't bomb, but it'll just, I'll know it's not, you know, like wasn't great. Like the audience might be laughing and applauding, and but I'll know. I, I just don't feel it was strong enough. And I'll do, and I'll, with those, I'll go off and say, well, I've been getting along with it. I've been getting away with it so far, and now they're catching on. You always, I think a lot of people feel that, like one day the the jig is up. Like, and um, I always feel like show business is a party that I snuck into, and one day they're going to walk over to me with a clipboard and go, oh, I'm sorry, your name's not on the guest list. You know, and, and I, I, what you're saying to me sounds ridiculous, but I won't try to correct you but i mean the obvious thing is you've created such a large persona and you've been involved in so many activities and so many people consider you an inspiration to their their own comedic skills like at some point one would think oh i've passed that line i'm i'm a success people know i'm a success but you're right look at like how many people you know one thing happens and then their career is over yeah and and it's like how, you know, how many times does a movie pop up on TV where you'll see an actor or actress and you'll go, God, they used to be in everything back then. And now I don't even remember what their name is. I have to look it up. And it's like, you know, like overnight, they're forgotten about. Yeah. So like, you know, actually I had this conversation uh, the other day like, do you remember the TV show Arliss that was on HBO? Oh, yeah. Robert Wall? Yeah. Whatever happened to Robert Wall? Yeah. Well, he was on our podcast. Yeah, so what did he but, do between Arliss and now? Yeah, yeah, I don't know. It's very weird. Like, did he make enough money from an HBO yeah. show that ran two seasons? Yeah, I have no idea. I guess he's, who knows? <laughs> and so, and so, but, but I do feel like 
One thing that's different between your act and a lot of modern comedians I see is that everything, every body movement, everything you do with your face, with your hands, with your back, with your legs, with your voice, the jokes themselves is all part of the act. And a lot of modern comedians and a lot of comedians beforehand too, I'm not just specifying these comedians, they'll just go up on the stage and they'll tell jokes and they have a good stand-up comedy effect so they are able to project and work with the crowd and control the crowd a little bit. But you, from the beginning, there's this absurdity. Like, who is this guy? He can't, he can't hold the mic properly. He's, he's slouched over. He can't see his voice. What's that voice? You're giving people, what it seems to me what's happening is you're giving a lot of people excuses to laugh. You're giving a lot of people opportunities yeah. to laugh rather than just the joke itself. Yeah, I, I think it's that, well, there's that old expression. I, I forget who said it. I mean, I think it gets accredited to just about everybody. And that's that uh, the difference between a comic and a comedian is a comic says funny things, a comedian says things funny. That's interesting. So like when you're just hanging out talking with your friends, Lots of people are comics. They say funny things, their yeah. friends laugh. But a comedian, what's the difference? What's, what's, a, what's a structured way to make an audience of strangers laugh? Like when you're, when you're thinking of creating an act, what are you thinking about? Boy, I never consciously thought of it. It's like um, when people say, where did your delivery come from? And I think to me, I was just performing so long, so many times. And then one day you wake up and go, this is my delivery. And uh, that I've been doing for uh, this many years. And to me, it's kind of like walking up to somebody on the street and saying, hey, you know, when you walk down the street, I notice the way you move your arms when you walk. Where did that come from? And it's like, it didn't. They didn't consciously think of it. Right, so like with your voice, for instance, it must, you must have over time, because I, I know how your voice sounds normally, you must have over time developed that as part of your act and saw, oh, people consistently laugh even before I start telling jokes. And so it becomes an easy way to get the audience to know who you are, to get the audience to like you, and then easy to slip into the jokes and the jokes could be crazy because the voice is crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I, and, and that's more thought than I put into Like you're it. able to do the aristocrats. I think if you were just talking in like my voice, people would think who's this? Like if I were to do the aristocrats the way you did it that one time or many of your jokes, people would say, who's this creepy guy? <laughs> they, they might be correct. And they might say the same thing about you, but with you, they're allowed to say it because your voice advertises it right away. Yeah, you're going to get something a little bit creepy and a little bit disturbing. Yeah. So Yeah, so I guess so. And now, like I said, it's more thought than I've ever given. Well, I, I really like to, to analyze everything that's, that's happening. And then, you know, you've said something that I think is very interesting, which is that if somebody tells you not to joke about something, oh, yeah. you're definitely joking about it. Yeah, it's it's because it's one of the well, it's it's like uh, you know, if you're in school and they tell you to be quiet, you'll want to make noise, and um, 
I've always felt like um, like in in funerals, uh, like the sometimes you'll see people sitting there, and one person will lean over to the other with a smirk on their face and say something, and the other person will throw their hands over their mouth not to laugh. Right, because there's so much tension. Yeah. And and laughter is almost this way of kind of breaking through the tension. Yeah. And and it's like it's needed, but it's like it's looked upon as, oh, no, that's horrible. Well, here, but this is an interesting question, and it comes up a lot lately that when is something too soon or inappropriate? Is there a line? Like you always want to go, and you've mentioned this, you want to go to the you want to figure out where the line is and go right over it. And yeah. I think you're recording George Carlin. Um, but can you go too far over it? It, I don't know. I mean, too soon always uh, was interesting to me because number one, who is in an office with the computer and the chart and going, okay, it will be okay to joke about this on exactly this date, like, and then it'll be okay. And I feel like, you know, like me, when they say too soon, and that makes me a bad guy. And uh, if you wait and it's not too soon, then you're the good guy and you're more sensitive to it. And to me, it's like when I do a joke about something that's happening right then and there, right when it's happening, it's like you're part of what's so funny about it is that you're going, oh God, how how awful taste. This is such a sad and horrible thing that he's joking about. So it acknowledges that it's sad and horrible. When you do a joke later on, like you could go up and do an hour and a half on the Titanic seeking and nobody will get offended. And it's like, and that'll make you a good person because you're saying, hey, fuck all the people who died on the Titanic. That was years ago. And that's what a good person. Right, so your, your point is, is that if you're commenting on it while it's still in the immediate public zeitgeist, A, you're bringing attention to it so that people are aware of the situation, but also... You're, you're cutting through the tension for all the people who don't know how to process. What, you're, you're making them laugh for all the people who don't know how to process what's going on. Like when the Japanese tsunami happened, you made a series of tweets about it that were mostly extremely funny. And it's not like everybody in America was, was crying simultaneously until you made your tweets. Then they're like, Oh my God, Gilbert Gottfried uh, yes. is not going to, his career is not going to survive 10 tweets that he made. Yeah. You know, like what, were you surprised at the reaction? And and by the way, this was so big a reaction that Aflac dropped you as the voice of Aflac. Who knew 75% of their business was in Japan? Yeah. <laughs> I would not have guessed that. Yeah. No, I found that out soon enough. It, it, it was like, um, and and it was like, yeah, it was, well, to me, I've always been doing jokes like that. And I thought to me, it was like, if every morning you get up and eat a bowl of cornflakes 
And then one day you eat a bowl of cornflakes and all hell breaks loose. And that's what I felt like. And it was like, I loved when people were saying stuff like, oh, and Gilbert, you know, a top story tonight, Gilbert Gottfried's career is over. And I'm thinking what I realized was if your career is over, you're not their top story. <laughs> you know, if you That's kind career, of a good point. Yeah. If your career is over, you could run into a burning building and save a baby, and they're not going to report about it because you're not important a name for them. And uh, so I, I realized that, and you realize that as long as they spell your name right. Because it was weird. It was like, especially with the... Well, the internet makes me feel sentimental for old-time lynch mobs. Because at least with the old-time lynch mobs, they actually had to put their boots on, go out, and get their hands dirty. They had to kill dirty. you. Yeah, they had to go out and actually kill you. Now all these anonymous people could just say, shame. Yeah, yeah, you sit on it's the- It's a witch hunt. Yeah, you sit on the couch in your underwear and form your own little lynch mob. It's it's kind of like the space age way of ringing someone's doorbell and running away. Yeah, and and but, you know, the way you're describing it now, like- oh, they said Gilbert Gottfried's career is over is, is the top story, so that must mean I still have a career. This is putting a very good face on it, but when when a million people are tweeting oh. about you and Aflac is, is not returning your calls and that was like a probably a multi-million dollar ad campaign, did you cry? <laughs> did oh, you think it, it was all it, over? It was, oh, trust me, trust me. I thought... Well, I had a nice little run there in show business. For and 40 years. <laughs> yeah. And now it's gone. And because it was, it was like I was kind con- There were reporters parked outside my house for I don't know how long. And they, I would like finally- Over a tweet. Yeah. I'd leave the house and they'd rush out from doorways and from cars and everything like, like they had captured like the biggest serial killer and um i do remember and it's in the documentary they have a clip of a newscaster they're showing the tsunami film clips of it and the newscaster is saying and to make matters worse gilbert gottfried sent out uh, a series of tweets and i'm thinking that made matters worse. Right. Yeah. I remember that clip. It's like all, it's like a hundred cars are being swept away yes. in this wave. And then somehow your tweet made matters worse. Yeah. So of course that's ridiculous. But at the same point, what was, what was the societal anger underneath that? Like, why did that happen? I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now 
because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and, and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. It's well, it's it's now with the internet. I mean, I remember growing up, there were certain newscasters, columnists, commentators, and uh, authors who you'd listen to. You knew they were educated and intelligent, and knew they what they were talking about. Now everybody is that. But but it's not that trend is never gonna reverse. Yeah, like, it only continues. Yeah. Yeah, now everybody everybody can put a show on the internet. Everybody can be a commentator. Everyone can do anything they want. And some people I guess, you know, if they if they I feel like if people join, I feel like there are teams. And so if you kind of join the right team, you can get everybody on that team yes. to go to to go behind you and say, "Yes, Gilbert Gottfried was awful for doing this." And like our, one of the tweets, I thought it, it sort of reminds, like you're clearly aware of how sad the situation is, even if you say something funny about it. Like, uh, you know, you'll say it obviously better than me, but we, the, do the tweet with the girlfriend. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I said, um, uh, I just split up with my, with, oh, I forget how that joke even I think my looked. girlfriend just broke up with me. Yeah. But like a Japanese guy told me there'll be another one floating by in five minutes. Right, which is, which is on the one hand funny. It's got a setup yeah. punchline. It's funny. And it's, it's, it, it, you could really only tell that joke right then. Yes. And at the same time, you're obviously aware of the sadness well, it, from it, the situation. I, I always, it always got me when people say to me, like, aren't you how could you joke about that? Aren't you aware of the the sadness and the tragedy? And I always go, well, yeah, I am aware of the sadness and the tragedy. And that's where the joke comes from. Right, you're breaking. So, okay, so let's actually work through the process of that, of that particular tweet. The tsunami just happened. People died. You look at the, what's the highest stakes thing that could happen to a person? Oh, they could lose their family or they could lose their wife or yeah. kids or girlfriend. Kids might be too much. Like, oh, I, I, my kid died. Yeah. Don't worry, another kid will be floating. But that might yeah. be too much. <laughs> that might not be funny because it's little kids might not be. But a girlfriend yeah. is, you know, plays up on, you know, people break up with girlfriends yeah. all the time. And it's, it's sad and it's tragic. But what would be happening in Japan and the same thing? And you kind of mix the two. Yeah. And I guess come with a joke. I'm just trying to imagine what your process was. Yeah. And once again, not that complicated a process. I just thought whatever joke, like I said, um, 
I asked my Japanese real estate agent, is there a school in the neighborhood? And she said, no, but there will be in five minutes. Yeah. And and it's like stuff like that. And it's, um, yeah, it was uh, a definite strange time period. Yeah, and so then for yourself personally, like you were 56 or 57 years old, did you think, were you scared? Were you think, did you think, oh no, am I going to be bagging groceries at Whole Foods? Like what's going to happen uh, to me yeah. next? <laughs> oh, definitely. Because, you know, like I said, you're always walking around thinking, you know, when when is the jig up? You know, when are they going to find out? And I thought, oh, this this might be it. But could you could you have thought to yourself, well, at least I'll go back on the road and I'll make a few bucks this way or like, or I don't know. Like what did, what was going through your head? What was the scariest thought oh, going through your head? Uh, Do you think about killing yourself? Yeah. Like what was going on? <laughs> a million things were going through my head. I remember I like, I stopped answering the phone for a long time because I thought it's going to be someone who wants to interview me, the horrible Gilbert Gottfried about, and you know, they all have their own agenda. You can't explain. But you can't do interviews at that point. Yeah, because, and it, there's a lot of interviews you do. If they have their an angle on it, then you're it's hopeless. Right, even if they say something is ridiculous and you say to them, please tell me you know that's ridiculous, and they say that's ridiculous. Yeah. They're still gonna get their yes. angle and, and ignore you completely. I would have, People, interviewers say to me right before we went on the air saying, oh, I thought all those jokes were hysterical. And then they go on and they take the moral approach. Yeah, and then you would you ever call them and say, I thought you were on yeah. my side. I thought oh, you were going to say something different. It was it's pretty much hopeless. So it's sad and it's anger that's coming up. Yeah. But deep down, what's the worst moment? Like where were you emotionally at the worst moment during oh, this. Oh, God, I don't remember. I just remember thinking, oh, this is it. But what does it yeah. mean, this is it? Does this mean... Like like it's it's all going to stop here. But what would what would stop? Your, your comedy career? Yeah, yeah. Would, would, would your financial life stop? You'd have to be oh, an accountant somewhere? All of that, yeah, so, all of that. My showbiz career would stop. Like, what did and, you think in your head? Oh, this is what I'm going to have to do now to make money next year. Yeah. What did you think? I don't know. It was all gone, and it was like... The funny thing is, is I didn't realize at the time that, you know, the villain of the month is like, you know, just like it's the flavor of the month at Baskin Robbins. They also had the villain of the month, sometimes the villain of the week on the Internet. Yeah. We need someone to go, hey, come on, gang, let's get a posse together and go after this one. Right. It's this team effect, like. You know, if one person on, on a team of a million people say, okay, now we're going to aim at this guy, they all come down on you. And, and I think also it's that thing of like, when, when people get offended and outraged, they're patting themselves on the back. It's like, see, I was outraged. Yeah, you're right. It's like a way of having, like, so here you are, you've worked for 40 years at building a craft that's incredibly difficult. You've been on a ton of movies. You've entertained a hundred million people. And for once, some anonymous guy in their yeah. basement could have status over you. Yeah. And I remember I got a 
Well, two tweets I remember the best. Uh, one tweet was uh, really funny. This guy wrote, Affleck fires Gilbert Gottfried after discovering he's a comedian. And I thought, that that's really hitting the nail on the head. And one other guy sent me a tweet. He said, you make me laugh at times when I don't want to, and that's when I need it the most. Yeah, and see, that's, that's why. So I'm still thinking about the construction of the girlfriend joke. So we've, we've dealt with the too soon argument. What would be too much? Would it, if you had replaced girlfriend with your kids, would that have been too much? It, it's, or would it have been not funny? It's weird because I find myself, you know, being hypocritical all the time. My, my favorite thing is when Mel Gibson was getting in all that trouble. Right. So and just to mention, you're obviously Jewish. Yeah. And Mel Gibson was, was pulled over and he was, uh, uh, did a 0.12 yeah. on, on the alcohol level, which was, he was way drunk. And he starts screaming how all the fucking Jews are taking over the world. Yes, he screamed the Jews. And then he apologized the next day. Yes, are the cause of every war. And he called the policewoman sugar tits. And then news came out that when his wife was holding their baby, he was slapping his wife. And he said he'd like to get a bunch of black guys, only he didn't refer to them as black guys. And uh, to rape and kill her, and he'd smash her over the head with a shovel and bury her in the rose garden. And after all that, after I heard all of that, all I could think was, well, wait a minute, what did he say about the Jews? <laughs> and that was really it. Right, and well, and actually, all that other stuff you just said, I didn't even remember. I only remember the thing about the Jews. Yeah. <laughs> so we were on Team Jew, being yeah. really horrified yes. <laughs> at Mel Gibson. And yet his career, you're right, he, he, was, he was a villain for about a year. And then, I don't know, he's probably broke bo box office records since then. <laughs> yeah, it's something. It's always, yeah. And they blame it a lot on, like, his brain chemistry really changes when he's under alcohol. <laughs> So you have to forgive the alcohol Mel Gibson versus the sober Mel Gibson. But who knows? But the question is, so Mel Gibson's not a comedian and nothing he says is going to be told in a comedic way. For you, there, there, again, we dealt with the too soon issue. What would too much be? When, when would you say, hey, this is a tragic event. If I were to say it in this way, it's probably too much. For, for an audience. I've never really thought that. And I guess I've been lucky. I've never really thought that. Because you're always, your brain's trained to think what's over the edge. Yes, yeah. It was like, um, yeah, I just would keep, uh, do, it, it's like to me, if you look up on the internet and on just day-to-day -day life, you've heard a million dead baby jokes. That's a whole category of jokes. Right. You know, how do you make a dead baby float, a glass of ice cream and two scoops of dead babies, stuff like that. And with those By jokes, the way, I don't get the joke, but just the way you say it makes yeah, me laugh. <laughs> yeah. And it's like there's a million dead baby jokes. And it's like, you know, when you do those jokes, you're not really saying that, oh, I approve of a baby dying. It's like when you're doing those jokes, you know it's horrible. That's why you're saying the jokes, because it's so awful. 
And it's like, you know, you're not saying, gee, I approve a baby's dying. Okay, but let's say, take take the recent example with uh, Roseanne Barr. And I don't, I don't, I don't like to date a top podcast the way I'm doing right now because, uh, but the Roseanne Barr incident happened in the past month. Usually, I won't talk about things happening right now, so the podcast could last forever. But take the Roseanne Barr incident where she, you know, says all these things about Valerie Jarrett. Is her sin being too much? Is her sin being not funny? Where or both or like? What what happened there? Yeah, that was well. That was another one. It, it, it's it's a funny thing though. Like when I hear about someone else getting in trouble, I kind of enjoy it now because I go, oh, see, everyone will be talking about that person, right? Not but me. there, but yours was a case where I I don't think you did anything. Not not that I'm the arbiter, but clearly I think. Time has shown you did nothing wrong, and and you know, I, I, again, it sounds like I'm I'm judging the situation. But Roseanne Barr, it's it, I wonder ten years from now, are people going to say, oh, that was no big. It's like Kramer when he yeah. you know flipped out at the Laugh Factory uh, in L.A. He probably went over some line that's societal, and I mean, I mean, he did go over some line. His career hasn't come back, and and it it is funny with him. It was like. That thing of every, every also everyone ignores that he was being filmed on people's phones, and no one ever said, "Hey, you know, you're not supposed to take your phone into a comedy club and start filming people." Right. And that that's the first thing that struck me. And I thought, had this happened before the age of cell phones and before the age of the internet. It would have been something that comics would have laughed at and talked about for a few weeks or months afterwards, laughing about what happened and and then forgotten. Well, you know, it's like Dave Chappelle commented on it. He said, A, that's when he started forcing people to lock up their phones and it only gets unlocked when yeah. they leave the show. And the other thing he said was, you know, he said the black person inside him was horrified but the comedian inside of him, and he says, I'm like 80% comedian. The comedian said inside of him said, man, Kramer's having a bad set. Oh, yes. Yeah. And that's all it is. It's you're having a bad set. And yet and his career never came back. So whereas yours, you know, obviously did, you know, so there must be some line where it really is too much, even for someone who's supposed to be saying ridiculous, absurd things. And and I remember with that, with the Kramer, uh, well, Michael Richards, he, then there was like uh, the manager of some club uh, announced that from now on, anybody who says that word on stage, the N word, which, and that, that, that also makes me laugh, the N word, the N-word, the F-word, the C-word. Like when you say those expressions, you're saying those words aloud in your head. So why can't you say the word? Right, and Louis C.K. even comments on that, like, and says it. Yeah. You know, in an act, and no one holds it against him. I think with with Michael Richards, the problem was he wasn't saying it as part of an act. He was yelling it at someone he yes. was angry at who was leaving the, the audience. And And it was, so this guy announced that there'll be a fine 
given to any comedians who says that. And I thought, wouldn't the wouldn't it have been better for that club owner to go, hey, I might not agree with that. He might say offensive and awful things, but I'm not stopping anybody. And if you come to my club, you might be shocked and offended by people you see. And that would be like, you know, because when he says he's going to forbid that word, it, it's kind of like if you advertise that an amusement park, our, our roller coaster, our roller coaster goes very slow and it doesn't rise up too high. There are no sudden moves. It's all very safe and very slow. You, you don't want that. You want to feel like you're going to die. Well, and it seems like your process, and I, I hate using that word almost, it makes it sound like you go through some scientific formula when you sit down, but you're figuring out, okay, where's the edge? Where is it? too soon or too tense and you're going to figure out some area on the other side of that line and sometimes it's okay sometimes you might miss the mark that's what happens when you're experimenting and trying things so was there ever a point where you felt like oh i did go too far that and 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 as a result nobody laughed i mean maybe the 9-11 situation oh, oh yeah yeah there's all those things um I remember I I once uh, did this show that was a tribute to Joan Rivers. And um, I went on stage, and it was right after there was that shooting at this gay nightclub. And I started doing jokes about the shooting at the gay nightclub. And the audience was laughing all the way through. And you know Joan Rivers, that's a largely gay audience. And, and one guy tweeted me and he said, I never thought that I'd wake, uh, he goes, I never thought I'd wake up crying and go to sleep laughing. That's, that's, that's good. Well, also it reminds me of your roast of George Takai. Oh. <laughs> all you're doing. All you're doing is is gay jokes and they were extreme like Oh yes. And you and the audience was cracking up. Everybody around you was cracking up. George Sakai's cracking up. So it seems like it's hard particularly when you're in a humor situation as opposed to Michael Richards as opposed to Roseanne Barr who's trying to make a political comment funny. Yeah. She wasn't really in a humor performance. When you're in a humor performance really everything should go. I mean, everything yeah. should be fine, but people don't consider it that way. It's, it's sort of like, even like Daniel Tosh, the rape joke, it didn't happen during his performance. It happened while an audience member was leaving. So he was angry. Yeah. So it's sort of like they're allowed to, people get status over him when he's slightly outside of his performance. And I think, I think George Carlin said, if I remember it uh, correctly, he said, anyone who thinks uh, rape jokes aren't funny. Just imagine Daffy Duck raping Elmer Fudd. <laughs> That's good, I but thought... you know, even even the word rape, people don't like to see. Because rape could mean many things. It could mean you're being taken advantage of in some horrible, yeah. sadistic way. But even if you use that word, it's now owned by, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not bringing up rape specifically, but like many words now, 
feel owned by different demographics. And uh, you show me one comedy that takes place in prison where you're not doing 5,000 rape jokes. Right. It's like almost by law, you have to fill it with rape jokes. But if it's a guy being raped, it's like, oh, oh, that's fine. That's, there's no problem there. And it's like, well, if you're going to say rape isn't funny, then you should get equally offended by prison rape jokes. Right, but uh, priest abuse jokes, people often don't think, you know, they either think are too soon or too much, you know, even from comedians. So it seems like there's some areas where it's like, you got to be very careful. You're touching like a hot radiator. Yeah. And, and again, your job as the comedian is to go over that edge. So you're, 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 it's like you're wearing a spacesuit and you got to make sure you don't get too far from the spaceship or you'll float away. It, it's kind of like, I forget his female name now, Bruce Jenner. Oh, Caitlyn Jenner. Caitlyn Jenner. Um, it seems like by law, you have to say he's the most beautiful woman in the world and or she, uh, I don't know. Also, that's something that will yeah, get you them. in trouble. Yeah. Should you say he, should you say she, should you say they? And you're also supposed to refer to him as a hero. And I'm thinking, well, is he? I don't know. It's like, I mean, I know like the firemen who ran into the World Trade Center, I know are heroes. Well, let me just tell you, Gilbert, if you chopped your penis off, I would consider you a hero. Yeah. <laughs> so, so when you were dealing with the the Aflac and the tsunami, how did you, what was the first step back out of the darkness? Like when you thought all was over, how long did it take? Like, what was your support system like? Like, what did you need to essentially not just lose yourself in depression at it, that point? It was, it was gradual. I mean, it was like, cause the depression was definitely there. The fear was definitely there. What were you afraid of? Like, other than the career, which is important, yeah. were you afraid of money? Were you afraid oh, all of, all nobody of, would like you? Yeah, all of the above. And um, I remember one thing that struck me. I was watching TV, and they had, and, oh, I, I, I actually on the internet, and all over the internet was Chris Brown was backstage at the, today's show and he got angry and flung a chair across the room and that was covered the internet that was the biggest news item and i'm going oh so right this week chris brown throwing a chair is bigger than the tsunami was it's and, just and then after that was there an actual day, like did you start performing again, or like when did you first when did you first leave your house for something professional? Oh, I, after the I, I was pretty immediate, you? pretty immediate, and and then I would do jokes about uh, the whole thing because you had to, you right. know. It's like once again the elephant in the room, and you, it sounds like you had a good support system. Like obviously, your wife Dara must have been very supportive. Like, don't worry, you'll you'll come back. 
Howard Stern was supportive. He had you on. And I remember at some, uh, they one time asked Joan Rivers about it. And she's, she was like, oh, that's so stupid. That's what he's supposed to do. <laughs> and I thought that's, and I loved how when that was happening, they wouldn't say I said jokes. They would all say comments and remarks. Because mm. if you say jokes, you're going to go, well, isn't that, it's a joke. What are we getting up in arms about a joke? I guess you can argue, like, let's say you said the same thing, and here we are, we're, sta- we're sitting on the stage of a, a club called Stand Up New York. I guess if you said it here, it's clear it's a joke. On Twitter, nobody knows anything. Oh, yeah. So they could say, oh, it's whatever I want him yes. to be. I can yeah. label it with whatever I want. It's, it's, a, it's a celebrity saying a comment. Yeah, and and it's like so many uh, things like, oh, one of the other Jenners was in a commercial, a a soda commercial. And it was supposed to, in the commercial, there's a protest going on, and she hands everyone a bottle of this soda, and it calms down the protest. And... People were up in arms about this, how tasteless this was. And I thought, wait a minute. It's, it's a, you know, it's a stupid commercial, but how many commercials are known for their vast intelligence? And yeah, I, it's, it's, it's almost arbitrary, particularly in today's polarized age. It's like us versus them, depending on... You know, it doesn't matter who's the us and who's the M. It's always us versus them. It seems like everybody takes a position and then someone's under attack. Yes. And it's arbitrary. Yeah. Like people picked on your tweets out of 7 billion tweets made that day. They picked on your 10 tweets. Yeah, like, and, and it's it's kind of like, uh, you know, all those expressions, like they say, that came from advertising. Like, you know, uh you know, let's run it up the flagpole and see who salutes it, or let's. Well, throw- what ad was that from? Uh, that was, I think they said that's from uh, that expression came from advertising, because you know you'll try something out, and if it ca- it catches on, then you keep doing it, or let's throw it against the wall and see if it sticks, and so you see that with the news a lot. They'll catch on to some story. And they'll see if they if it's got any life to it. And if people get up in arms, they'll keep doing it. And if people don't get up in arms, then it's like, okay, find something else. So in today's day and age, you know, Donald Trump's president, it's almost too easy to, like, you don't see a lot of comedians just making fun of Trump because it seems like almost cliche to do that. Yeah. Like if you were to make an act today, uh, what were what would be some of the issues you would look at? Like, okay, this this is very tense. Potentially, there's a line here, and I'm going to go over it. What would be some of the things you would look at? Oh God, I don't even know. I mean, political stuff I never really did. Yeah. Because uh, and and then I, I guess keeps it fresh because you could do the same joke ten years later, twenty yeah. years later. Uh, yes, and it's like most political jokes seem to me like. You know, if you're the host of a late night talk show, you could do those jokes because you do it that night 
and it's still fresh. Right. And by by tomorrow it won't be. Right. It's like I heard they're gonna bring back Murphy Brown, and I yeah, in, a, in about a week. Yeah, and I Murphy Brown was one of those shows I never quite got because like they do a joke about Dan Quayle or something like, and I go. Maybe when this was first reported, you could do that. Like if you're the host of The Tonight Show, you could go on that night. It's kind of funny because you just heard it. And then after that, it's like, I I feel like, uh, what does that joke mean? Let me look it up. <laughs> right. Well, uh, so, so, I mean, you did... I feel like with Louis C.K., he sort of started the trend of comics rewriting their act every single year, starting from scratch. You didn't really do that. You kept a lot of jokes throughout yeah. the, the years. But, you know, I listen to your podcast. You're cracking jokes all the time. You're a funny guy. <laughs> so, and again, maybe it's the difference between you being a comic versus being your comedian persona. But if you were to say, okay, I'm going to make a new act and go on the road... You know what? 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 What's your? What would you sit down? Would you just look around and start observing things? Like, what would you do? And I know I'm asking like yeah. questions that might not have answers. I yeah, that one definitely doesn't have. Because <laughs> I mean, where most of my act came from was going up on stage, and I'd start something would hit me, and I'd start fooling around with it, and then if it worked, I I it would start expanding on its own. I was never one of those people that got up in the morning, had a cup of coffee, and uh, started typing out 10,000 jokes. That but but you might write notes. Him. Like I saw in the documentary, you have notes. Like yeah. there was a sick heel joke. There was, you, you had celebrity fucking joke, or yeah. I don't know what it was. I had that, yeah. But, and, and always like, I, I write down those notes, and then I can't even understand <laughs> 99% of them. And But I guess, though, maybe after the a decade or so experience of dealing with crowds, you would start to get a feel, okay, this direction is working, this direction is not working, and then you would expand on the direction that's working, and that would build up your act. Yeah, it has happened that way, yeah. I'll just, uh, would just, something would get to me, and I, it just would start expanding on its own. And, and what's, like, why do you do the podcast? Like, it seems like you're really... A super hard ring. You you do more podcasts than me, I think. Yeah. Like, um, I'm I do this all the time. It seems that you're you're releasing a couple episodes a week sometimes. Yeah, it was. It, it's funny. It's like a lot of times when I'll get a guest, it'll be like people I would have liked to have spoken to anyway, but at least this gives me a reason to. Like like Dick Van Dyke was on. He was Hilarious. great. And uh, oh, Bruce Stern. You know, to just sit and talk with Bruce Turton about stuff and all those people. And like a lot of times you're talking about your old inspirations. Who? What are some of the new comedians and comics you look at? Because you had a, a great conversation with Howard Stern where you talk about how so many people say they're inspired by, so many young comedians now yeah. say they're inspired by Richard Pryor or Lenny Bruce. And it's almost ridiculous because even though they were funny during those days, a lot of their comedy is dated. Even the style yeah. is dated. Like what modern comedians now do you sort of take a look at and say, yeah. oh, that guy's pretty good it, or that it, woman's good? It, it's funny. It's like 
you could have been raised, you could have gone into show business because you used to watch Hee Haw on TV. And, but if someone asks you, you'll go, oh, well, what influenced me was Lenny Bruce, Richard Pryor, and George Carlin. That's what influenced. And it's like, I always feel like if you say to any one of those people, like, well, can you tell me one of their bits or one of their jokes in particular? And they won't know. They'll just know those are the names. It's just like there are names of people you're supposed to hate. Like Gallagher is one of those, you're supposed to say, oh, he's no good. Right. Or, you Carrot know. Top. Carrot Top, another one. Like, oh, we hate him and it's okay. It's just like, I don't know who Anne Hathaway killed in her career. I don't know what murder spree she was on that it's perfectly okay to hate Anne Hathaway. I mean, I never got that one. But there are these people. There are other people you have to knee-jerk reaction, say you like or say you hate. But is there anybody that you would say, or maybe you don't watch like, I don't know, the latest. I mean, Netflix has so many. I think they had like 70 specials last year. It's hard to keep track of them all. Oh, well, that's the thing. When people ask me, like, what comics I like, it's like, that's the problem. You, It's kind of like, to me, watching comedies, like going to work on your day off. And it, it's like if you are the manager of a restaurant. When you go to another restaurant, you're sitting there the whole time going, oh, see, I would have done that differently. I would have done this and this. And it's like, so when you're a comic and you watch another comedian, you find yourself going, ah, ah, yeah, that's clever. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, you're not really laughing, but you're, you know, mentally going, uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah. You know, it, it's, you know, and then this will this will start to, to round it up. I think we have a, a few minutes left. But again, I think your style is to be absurdist in almost every way, as I mentioned before. Even the jokes themselves are absurdist. And take someone like Louis C.K. He often had an absurdist bent, but then he started opening up and talking a lot about his personal life. And that really kind of moved his career in a different direction. Do you feel... Do you ever feel like, oh, maybe I should, you know, now obviously you're, I don't want to say you're set in your ways, but you know what you want to do when you're on on the road and stuff. Um, do you ever feel like going into the personal life or making hey, joke, making it, fun of your kids? It, it's weird because, uh, you know, with the documentary, uh, Gilbert on Hulu, uh, it's... It, it, that was the like the first time I really out and out revealed myself, and it, and it, they hit upon yeah. it in the film because I always think of that scene in Wizard of Oz of hey, don't look at that man behind the curtain, and so that it, it's funny that that movie got so many uh, nothing but great reviews. I think because it shows the contrast between this odd persona you have on stage and the real you. Yeah. And it's a very big contrast. Yeah. And it, it, it's, uh, it, it was something, it's like, 
yeah, I, I so I all the reviews have been great. People always come up to me saying they love the documentary. And to me, I was miserable making it and I'm miserable watching it. Because it's it's almost like the first time you hear your voice recorded and you go, Well, there's something wrong with that machine because every other voice they recorded correctly, but not mine. You know, it's 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 funny because uh I think I think that documentary was so great because it mixed your your comedy with this real persona but you've been you're 63 you've been doing comedy since you were 14 or 15 and nothing else and it almost seems in that documentary and i haven't seen anyone mention it this way about the documentary it almost seems like you're this big or older child just having a lot of fun and even though it has its ups and downs there's sad moments in the documentary and there's very touching moments but there's this childlike aspect that I think most people don't have, which I think is what I really got out of the documentary. Like, I'd like to live my life that way. It is inspirational that way. Yeah, it's like mentally and emotionally, it just kind of stops somewhere. Do you think, do you think you're, do you think that's true that you're like just this big child? Like, it's almost like it's great you have your, your wife and kids around. Yeah. They kind of order the world around you for you. Yeah, it's like, it's funny. I always laughed and rolled my eyes when I'd hear Jerry Lewis in an interview say this, but then it started to make sense to me. He would go, well, with me, I'm nine. <laughs> and I thought, and then after a while, I thought, at first I thought that's so pretentious and so... Uh, but then I thought, yeah, yeah, no, I get that totally. And and I maybe also keeping that childlike way allows you to constantly view the world in this absurdist fashion. Like you're 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 able to hit the limit in almost as absurd ways constantly. And like the biggest example to me is the aristocrats joke, but there's many many examples. And I don't know. It seems like that absurdity could often be funnier than people always say, oh, find your real voice, find your truth. Yeah. But maybe life is absurd to you. Yeah, yeah, it is. <laughs> well, Gilbert Godfrey, you're an inspiration to me, a hero to me and a, a great comedian. I do think your comedy is timeless and should be studied by anyone wanting to be a comedian or an artist. And I don't even know what you want to promote. Everybody should listen to your podcast the gilbert godfrey amazing colossal podcast yeah great podcast and i just love the chemistry between you and your friends yeah talking your inspirations everyone should do a podcast like that but they should listen to yours for for inspiration and and, and uh oh and uh gilbert uh is the documentary and oh my website gilbertgodfrey.com GilbertGoffrey.com. And when are you going to do a Netflix special? I feel like if you're, if I were your I, agent, I, I would just call Netflix and say, give this guy half a million dollars I, I, to do a if, Netflix if special. If I had a brain in my head, I would. Oh, 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 you, you have a brain in your head. Yeah. Why does my agent do this? <laughs> well, who's your agent? We're calling your agent. That's what I'd like to find out. <laughs> I'm calling Netflix yeah. after this and getting you a Netflix special. Yeah. I won't even take a cut. You could just have one. So oh, thank you. Thanks once again for coming on the podcast and, and you're always welcome back. Thank you. Oh, thank you. That was fun.